Hey, I just want to say I love being here. I love you guys. I love sitting there and watching what God is doing with our youth and um, listening to Ashlyn and Jess and what God is doing in and around us. It's exciting to do this together, and I just want to say thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of it. We are entering the Christmas season, if you can believe that, and um, I can't really. Oh, it'll be over, like, really quickly, so if that's any encouragement, it'll be January tomorrow, and then we'll be on to the next year. Man, it goes fast. It's going really fast, but I'm excited about coming into this Christmas season because I think it gives, gives us some unique opportunities. It gives us some unique opportunities to talk about the story of Christmas when everyone is receptive to hearing about Christmas. So we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about the Christmas story. And what I would ask of you is just to think about it and consider it a little bit, because I think we can come into Christmas and say, yep, heard it, yep, heard it, I knew that, Um, I've got a busy schedule, let's move on. That's why I would encourage you to pick up that Advent book or to download it online and say, let's spend some time with the Lord during this month and let's put the focus where the focus belongs. That's why I would encourage you to pick up a few of our invitations for Christmas Eve and say, you know what? Instead of just thinking about all the things I'm going to do this Christmas season, I'm going to be paralyzed with fear about who I'm going to invite to our Christmas Eve service. I want you to be thinking about those things because we're here to tell the story of who God is and what he's done. Speaking of stories, we get to talk about the Christmas story for a minute, but let me tell you another story that some of you may know, some of you may never have heard of, Years ago, there was a children's book editor named Peter Wenders, and he was approached by a children's book author and illustrator by the name of Harris Burdick. I don't know if any of you have heard of Harris Burdick before, but he came to him and he said, I have some stories that I would like you to publish. In fact, um, I have 14 of them, and I'd like you to publish these stories, and so I've brought a little bit of each one with me today. I've brought a, a book title and an illustration from each book and a caption that goes with each story. And if you like the stories, I'll come back tomorrow with the 14 manuscripts for the books that you're going to buy from me. Well, Peter Winters looked at what he brought and he was intrigued by what he saw. And so he said, yes, by all means, bring them back tomorrow. But Harris Burdick didn't come back the next day. Harris Burdick didn't come back the next week. Harris Burdick disappeared and was never heard from again. As hard as he looked and searched for Harris Burdick, he couldn't find him. And so what he was left with was 14 book titles, 14 separate illustrations, and 14 captions that went with each one. So I've asked Robert if he would help me out this morning. I brought a few of them, not all 14. I'm hoping you can see them. But the first one is from a book called The House on Maple Street. And the caption that goes with this image was... It was a perfect liftoff. That's it. That's the title of the book. That's the illustration. That's the caption that went with it. Here's another one. This one is from a story called Just Desserts. And the caption that went with this was, She lowered the knife and it grew even brighter. That's it. Okay, the next one. This one is from a story called Under the Rug. Now, I don't know if you can tell. I'm going to move this just in case. Sorry, Joe and team. Under the Rug is the name of this book. And the caption that went with this is, 
Two weeks passed, and it happened again. I don't know about you, but I'm like, I want to read these books. There's one last one. This is maybe my favorite. This is from a book called The Seven Chairs. And the caption that goes with this is, the fifth one ended up in Paris. (laughs) Now, there is no one named Harris Burdick. There's no children's book editor named Peter Wenders. There is a children's book author and illustrator that goes by the name of Chris Van Allsburg. Many of you have pulled out his book already this season because he's the one that illustrated the Polar Express. But Chris Van Allsburg wrote the story of Peter Wenders and Harris Burdick, and he published a book called The Mysteries of Harris Burdick. It is a children's book with 14 illustrations, 14 book titles, and 14 captions. No beginning, no end, just that. It is incredibly imaginative and incredibly annoying. (laughs) Used by teachers all over the place to help kids kind of spark their imagination to write creative stories. Tell us the story of the seven chairs. Somehow that has to fit into it. Why do I bring this up this morning? Because our, our lives are part of a story. Our lives are part of a grand narrative that is being told by a great, author, but sometimes our, our lives feel like we just sort of walked in on the middle of the story. We're not really sure where it started. We're not really sure where it's going because our story is just a fragment. Our story is just a piece of the big story that's being told. And the cool thing about the Christmas season is it gives us a chance to talk about the Christmas story, which gives us a chance to talk about the big story the epic story that's taking place and find out where our fragment of the story fits in so that when we look at our lives, it's not just irritating because we're not sure where we've come from or where we're going or how it's going to end, but we're going to see how our fragment of the story fits into the bigger story, the epic story that God is telling. That's the narrative over the next four weeks. We're going to talk about epic Christmas. What is an epic We don't really talk about epics very much anymore. If you went with the classic sort of historical definition of epic, you would probably think of something like Paradise Lost by John Milton. I don't know, how many of you have read Paradise Lost by John Milton? Okay, (laughs) yeah. There's not a lot of hands because Paradise Lost is 12 books about the fall of man. It is epic, at least in length, if nothing else. Many of you were forced to read the poem Beowulf in high school. If you're not in high school yet, you will be forced to read the poem, and I mean forced to read the poem Beowulf. 3,183 lines of poetry about a very rather depressing story about a Viking. The Iliad and the Odyssey written in the 8th century, two of the most classic epics, the most classic poems of Greek literature. Epic is a word that we don't use a lot in the epic sense anymore. We've kind of adopted it now to mean awesome. It's sort of the new awesome. You don't hear a lot of people talk about an epic tale anymore, meaning like a grand story. You will hear people talking about an epic fail. You'll see a lot of that on Facebook or on Instagram, which means it's a failure for the ages, not a story for the ages, right? The irony is... In the grand narrative in God's story, it is an epic tale of heroes and adventure 
And it includes an epic fail right at the beginning. It's all included in God's story that he's telling. G.K. Chesterton, one of the best, most prolific writers of the 20th century, said this. He said, I've always felt life first as a story. And if there's a story, then there's a storyteller. We're going to talk for four weeks about Christmas, but this morning we're going to talk about the storyteller. We're going to talk about how the Christmas story reveals the storyteller and tells us something about him and the story that he's telling. Before we do that, before we open God's word this morning, I would just ask if you would pray with me. Would you do that? Heavenly Father, we come into this season and we already feel busy if we aren't already. We fill our calendars, we fill our tables, we fill our homes. And I would just ask, Lord, that you would give us a moment of pause to consider you. Would you allow the story that you are telling to sink deep into our hearts? Would you help us to own that story? Would you help us to share that story? And we thank you for inviting us to play a part in it. Lord, would you speak to us through your word this morning as we open it? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to John chapter 1? We're going to start there. If you don't have a Bible, we've brought some for you. And if you look around the seats, you can probably find one near you. And you are welcome to use that this morning. You're welcome to take it home with you. We'd love for you to have that copy of God's Word. And if you're using our Bible, we're going to be on page 886 of the New Testament. So way at the back, page 886. In 86, the arrival of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas, the, the gift of God's Son at Christmas, has a long list of implications for us. Some of those implications we're going to unpack over the next four months, but maybe one of the most staggering truths about Christmas is that Jesus reveals God to the world. What does that mean? Why do we care that Jesus reveals God to the world? Look with me at the beginning of John chapter 1. It says this. We're actually going to, our passage is starting in verse 14, but I want to start at verse 1 of John 1 because it's going to give us a little bit of context here. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So like any good storyteller, John starts at the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture at all, as many of you are, as most of John's readers would be, in the beginning refers to something, kind of recalls something to mind. What do you think of when you hear in the beginning? You think of Genesis 1.1, which starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the difference between the Genesis telling and John's telling in John chapter 1? John says that in the beginning, someone was with God. This person is distinct from God because he's with him. But John also tells us that this person was God, so this person is equal to God but separate from God. That's confusing. John is telling us something important. What is he telling? 
It's important that we understand what he's saying here, but it's also important that we don't get lost in this this morning, because we could spend the rest of the morning, probably the rest of the week, talking about John 1.1. 1, 1. It's, a, it's a lot to take in. Let me just give you a couple things that I think would be helpful to give us some context for where we're going to be this morning. When John says the word, John means Jesus. So we could read this saying, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. That's simpler. That's a little easier for us to understand. So the logical question then is, why didn't John just say that? Why did he write it in this way? Well, it's a little harder for us to understand, but his reasoning is actually quite brilliant. John is writing his gospel to a broad audience, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, meaning not Jewish people. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, what do the Jews hear? The Jews hear the prophetic word of God. In the beginning was the prophetic word of God coming down from heaven. So John would say, the word of God is no longer, I don't want you to just think of it as God's spoken word. I want you to think of it as a person, the person of Jesus Christ. God's word is personal. Not only that, but he was there from the beginning. Jesus was not someone who just came onto the scene The Gospel of John, he was there from the very beginning part of the Holy Trinity. When God's Spirit was over the water during the creation of the earth, John is saying Jesus was there with God and equal to God. That's what the Jews hear. What do the Greeks hear when they read, in the beginning was the Word? Well, the Word to the Greeks is the logos, or what they would understand to be reason. What the Greeks thought was the logos or the reason that governs the universe. So in the same sentence that John tells the Jews, Jesus always was and always has been God and now has been realized in human form. He said all that. To the Greeks, he's saying, the thing that you believe governs the universe, the word, reason, is Jesus. He said both things at the same time to two different groups of people. Isn't that incredible? Brilliant of John. Brilliant. And somehow he's able to use language that is completely biblical and perfectly contextual to the people that are hearing it. It's really cool. If you missed all of that, if none of that made any sense, let me just say this. From the beginning, Jesus was. He was with God, and he is God. That's it. That's the cliff note version, okay? Now, deep breath. That was a lot. Now we'll get to our actual passage for the morning, which is in verse 14. Here's why we need to know this. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what is John saying? Jesus became a man and he set up his tent in our backyard. That's about as literal a translation as you can get. Jesus became flesh and he set up his tent. That's what dwelt means. He set up his tent in our backyard. John's saying Jesus became a man. In Jesus, he became like us, and he dwelt with us. Now, this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. But when we hear this, when we hear John say, in Jesus, God is here, present with us, we think, yeah, we know. We talk about it every Christmas. We call it the incarnation, or we talk about the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We understand that God came as a baby to save the world. We talk about it every year. We know somehow we have lost the impact of this. 
this is a big deal. How is this not a big deal? Let me just put this in the context of Genesis since we were already there a little bit this morning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and he created man in his his image. And he appointed man as his governor or his viceroy, his co-ruler. And he said, I'm gonna create all of this. And then Adam, you are gonna rule over all that I've created and we are gonna be together. I'm gonna be with you. You're gonna be in my presence and you're gonna rule over all that I created. How cool is that? He said, we are created to be in relationship with God. And then sometime in like page two, of the story that God is telling, Adam and Eve said, nah, that's a loose paraphrase, okay? (laughs) Nah, we have our own idea. We'll take it from here. Completely reversed the created order. Rejected God's created order. This is the epic fail within the epic tale was the collective, nah, not just Adam and Eve, everyone since who has been manipulated and tricked, whose view of the world has been distorted by God's enemy, to just say, nah, I'll put myself in your place. I'll be my own God. I'll make my own choices. I don't need to submit to you. The entire Old Testament The entire narrative of God's book, like most of your Bible, tells the story of that broken relationship. Most of your Bible tells the story of the separation of our divorce from relationship with God. The entire Old Testament focuses on God's holiness. He's not like us at all. He's completely unlike us. We were talking about that recently. God is a spirit. He's not a man. He's the invisible God. We can't see him. He can't even show himself to us because we'd be incinerated in his presence. He is completely unapproachable. No one can even come near him except for some very elaborate and very cumbersome processes where you can come before him once a year and even then they tie a rope to the priest in case he dies in the presence of God and they can pull him out of the tent. That's the unapproachable holiness of God. God loves his people desperately and his love for them is shown throughout scripture. It's shown through his faithfulness to his people. His love for them is shown through the law where he expresses his will for what his people would be like and how they would live. But you can't look at God and you can't be with God. And then suddenly in John, what does he say? God is a man. He's flesh. He's here. He's near. Unbelievable. Suddenly, God, the author of the grand narrative, inserts himself into the story to fix the problem. The problem that was created when we put ourselves in God's place finds its shocking solution when God puts himself in our place. Do you see that? That's the story being told in Scripture John says, in Jesus, God is here in our presence. That's amazing. And then he says, in Jesus, God's glory is revealed. Look at the last part of verse 14. The first part says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. Somehow, in Jesus, we see the glory of God revealed to the world, unveiled to the world. Amazing. Think about it for a minute. Somehow, in God's creativity and in God's compassion, he packages up all of his glory and he puts it in a baby. And he says, somehow, this baby will grow into a man that will reveal the glory of God to the world. Wow. Think about all the things we've been talking about over the last couple of months as we've gone through this series about our marvelous God. Think of all the ways that we described him. God put them all into his son because his son is God, powerful, provider, creator, knows everything, sovereign over everything, and yet humbles himself to become a baby. Amazing. In Jesus, John says, we see grace and we see truth. That's what's revealed in Jesus through his life. What does that mean? The grace of God revealed through Jesus looks like this. In Jesus, we see the greatest possible expression of God's compassion for his children. Jesus is the greatest expression of God's compassion for us. And the truth of Jesus, the truth of God that is revealed in Jesus is this. Jesus is the perfect way of conveying the truth of who God really is of all the ways that God could express himself to his people so that they would understand what he was like. He said, the best way for me to reveal the truth of who I am is through my son in the flesh. Amazing. John says, in Jesus, God is here among us. In Jesus, God's glory is revealed. And then he says, in Jesus, we receive grace. Look at verse 16 of John 1. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. In Jesus we receive grace, John says, and we think, good, that's good, I need grace. Grace is good, right? It sounds good. And if God's giving it, it's probably good. What does it mean for me that Jesus brings grace, grace upon grace, it says? What does it mean? Typically in the New Testament, when we talk about grace, when Paul talks about grace, he talks about God's unmerited favor toward us, which means God's favor toward me even though I don't deserve his favor. Is that what John means? Yes, and. He means that and more. He means God's favor bestowed on me When I don't deserve it, he also means God's loving kindness, which means God's tenderness and God's consideration of his children. All of that is wrapped up in this. In Jesus, we receive that again and again. What does that look like? That means in the gift of Jesus given at Christmas, we receive God's unending mercy, God's unending love, his unending compassion and kindness toward us. And goodness. I love the way our children's Bible says that at home. It says God's never stopping, never giving up love. That's what we receive in the person of Jesus. Verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's not setting these up as opposites. 
saying, you used to have the law, but now you have something completely different. You have Jesus. He's saying, you used to have the law, and now you have something completely better in Jesus. The law was the preview, was the foretaste of what God wanted for his children. It was like a preview of God's desire in his heart for what we would be like. And then he says, in Jesus, he's the real thing. He's the fullest expression of what I desire for you. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. You can't look at God. You can't be with God. That relationship is broken. But Jesus has revealed God to the world. And he came to fix the broken relationship. That's why it's a big deal. That's why it's a big deal that Jesus is here and he reveals God. That's why it's a big deal that we can see God in the person of Jesus. That it's not just a nice saying. It's not just a quaint thing that we say. It's the real thing, the fullest expression of God in human form. In the epic Christmas story, the fact that Jesus reveals God is a big deal. It's a big deal. The storyteller shows up in his own story to fix the problem. And John says, in Jesus, God is here. In Jesus, the glory of God is revealed. In Jesus, we receive God's loving kindness, grace upon grace, washing over us in the person of Jesus. And the problem that was created when we put ourselves in God's place and said, eh, we'll take it from here, was solved when God put himself in our place and said, I'll take it back. There's a lot to the story. There's so much more to the story than just Jesus reveals God for who he is. There's the story of why he came. There's the story of what he did. There's the story of what that means for us. That's what we're going to talk about in this month leading up to Christmas. The epic story that God is telling in the life of Jesus. But for this morning, for today, for this week, I feel like this is enough. That we could just soak in this for a little bit. Jesus came here and set up his tent in our backyard to show us what God is like. In God's creativity as this grand storyteller and his compassion for his children, somehow he thought to write this part in. Isn't that amazing? Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. Let me read this to you. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's what Paul is saying. If the gospel is veiled, if the story of who God is and what he's doing is hard to see, that is a work of the enemy of God. Because in the truth, God has revealed himself and unveiled himself to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, who is the image of God? When you look at Jesus, you see God. 
That's what he's saying. He continues. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, putting God back in his rightful place. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen to this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're divorced from relationship with God. Our hearts are dark. And Paul says, God takes a light and shines it into our heart. And what is the light? It's Jesus revealing the glory of God and revealing who God is directly to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He says the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that. When you look at Jesus, you see God. And God says, this is the best way that I can express myself to you, my children. So where does our piece of the story fit in? If your life is a fragment of this story and God is telling this story and it's a great story. (laughs) And he's very creative and praise God that he wrote all this thing in about Jesus saving us because otherwise we're lost. That he's shown that light into our hearts and revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But if my life is a piece of the story, where does my piece fit in? Depends on what role I choose to play in God's story. I already know who wins. I already know who the rightful king is. I know how the story ends because God's given us the whole story here. And so I can choose to bow my knee to the rightful king and put God back in his right place. And when we talk about surrendering your life to Jesus, that's what we mean. Because we have all said, nah, no thanks. That sounds like a lot of rules. I'll take it from here. But then suddenly we're confronted with the fact that we cannot restore a right relationship with God and we'd better be in right relationship with God before we meet him. And God says, I've made a way for you to be with me. And I humbled myself to be like you, which is pretty humble for God. Put himself somehow into a baby who would grow into a man that would reveal who God is because that baby was destined for the cross from the very beginning. And he said, I, the rightful king who you usurped, I have put myself in your place and I have put my son on the cross to pay the punishment for your sin so that I could adopt you into my family. How good am I? He is a great God who's telling a great story and we have an opportunity to play a part in that story, to bow our knee to God and say, you are the king and I will live my life for you. And part of my role in bowing my knee to God is to tell other people the story of who God is and what he's done. Because not everybody knows this story. And we come into Christmas, a season where people are willing to talk about God and talk about Jesus. Who better to tell the story than the people who have heard the story and surrendered to the king and said, let me tell you how good my God is. And if you're here this morning, and that's not your story, and you haven't surrendered to the king, and you didn't know this, and you didn't understand why it was a big deal, it's a big deal. And I would just say, bow your knee to the rightful king. Say, I want to follow Jesus with my life. Here's what God said when he initiated his rescue plan, and we'll end with this. Jesus was God's rescue plan to bring us back to himself and to reconcile us, and God said this, hey, I bring you 
good news of great joy, and it's for everyone. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and he is Christ the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a great God. We want to worship you now and praise you. What an amazing story, and we thank you for inviting us into the story that you're telling. I pray right now, Lord, if you are working on our hearts this morning that we would surrender, continually surrender our lives to you. Lord, if there's someone in the room right now who has not bowed their knee, who has not surrendered their life to you, I pray that it would happen today. Would you tug on their heart? Lord, we thank you for inviting us into your family, even though we don't deserve it. We thank you for grace upon grace that we receive in the gift of your son, Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.